Because if we can uh, build uh, the fear of the Lord, if we can build the, an understanding or even get a revelation first of the fear of the Lord in our lives, then what happens is, is that we can put ourselves in a place where getting the other things from the Lord, the wisdom and the understanding, which then move it into the New Testament when we talk about uh, the, the, a similar word to wisdom in the New Testament is the word faith. And so when the beginning of faith, then getting the word of God into the heart of a human being, which is what the Old Testament is talking about when it's talking about wisdom or differentiating wisdom from knowledge, it's talking about it in the sense that you begin your journey towards these things with the fear of the Lord. And so recognizing then that as we are in this discovery process right here of going from misery to blessing, that in this process right here, we are looking to change what we see and change what we understand or the knowledge that we have, we want to change it. So we want to go along this road here, the knowledge that we would have been, we would have had before that determines the things that we believe, then we have to unlock all of these. In order to unlock them, we have to take a certain set of knowledge and get it out and a certain set of knowledge and get it in. In order to do that, the best way to get that done then is what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. And getting the fear of the Lord in place in our lives then causes this journey along here, which we talked about before. This is the difficult side of the journey. Once we get across this line here, the journey becomes very easy. It's just then, you know, plant your tomato seed and then sit around and wait and watch it grow and then come back a little while later and sure enough, there's, there's little tomato seeds on your plant. You got to do a little bit to it but it's not as difficult as the season that comes through here where we have to intentionally as human beings identify the deceptions that we have thought up until this point were truth. And then as we identify them, then it's that process of allowing new understanding to come into us without rejecting it. And so a lot of the time when you're dealing with this journey, we are dealing with issues of truth. And predominantly for us as human beings, you're dealing with the issue of truth versus facts. And we would probably say until today that perhaps truth and facts are the same thing, but they are completely different things. And oftentimes when we are learning through our journey of determining what it is that we believe to be true, we're not just being haphazard or chaotic in that determination. When our soul is going through it from our formative years, 0 to 10, or 11, 12, 15, whatever, really up until the age of 21, we're really learning and deciding what are those things that we believe. And the way we use, the way we do that is by observing, at least as mortals we do this, as normal mere humans, what we do is, is that we're looking around at all the facts that we have experienced, all the real things. This is a chair, that is a fact. And so we determine that with experiences that we have, with encounters that we have, how we feel about things, how we think about things. We treat all of that as though as it, as it is real. And then when God comes to us and he begins to talk to us about what the truth is, we're kind of flabbergasted by the fact that the truth does not line up with the facts that we have experienced. When I tell you that there's no such thing as lack, everybody in the whole room shuts down and goes, yep, okay, he's off it again here, he fell, right? His mind is blown, I knew it was gonna happen sooner or later because everybody has got an experience with lack. 
And so because you have an experience that there is a fact, that there is lack, therefore we think then the truth must be that the world is full of lack. And you see how we make that disconnect? And so when God comes to us and he starts talking to us about what the truth is, then that truth, literally, if we took a look at the human, a human being, it's gifted, I know, just, you know, and the truth comes to us from God, goes, hits our soul, and literally bounces off of us. Because we just already feel like we know the answer to that question. That's how our soul deals with it, and we'll talk a little bit about that. This process of understanding how our soul deals with information that it does not already agree with is a critical place of understanding how to walk by faith. Because walking by faith is that process of transforming the, our knowledge base or what we believe to be true from deception to truth. And so micromanaging this simple process of how do you get new knowledge is what God is talking about in Proverbs. It's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of that process. If you don't have a fear of the Lord, then what, God, what happens is, is that God's information comes to us just as an opinion. And if we disagree with that opinion, which we always do, then we just reject his opinion. If it's just another person, if the Bible is just another book, if God is just another concept, uh, if all of these things that we do, religion is just created by men, if we, were, if we understand things that way, then as long as God says something that I already agree with or that works for me, then I'm willing to accept that. But when God says something that I don't agree with and I really don't give him any credential or, or ability to speak to my life, then what I do is I just reject it. I'll just wait for the next thing that Ian says because you know, hopefully something he'll say today I'll agree with. Right? And I'll go home with that. The rest of it I'll just reject because it's just not true what he's saying. And you see, we do that because we don't understand the difference between truth and fact, right? It's uh, it, interesting in Romans chapter one, it tells us that God is visible even in natural things. Everything look, you know, if you look at the way, you know, all things in God work by seed time and harvest. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And so that appears everywhere in the scripture. It appears everywhere in nature. It appears in your relationship. It appears in your finances. It appears in your, in your health. It appears in every area of your life because that is part of the nature of God. As a sacrificial person, God is all about giving. He's a loving person. And so as a giver by nature, he's gonna design a world that is driven by his nature, which is also our nature, since we are created in his image and likeness. It's just that our, <clears throat> our nature has been twisted around. It's a very interesting fact that I learned uh, a while ago was that in the way a human eye works, I don't know if you would recognize the, in the front of the human eye is a lens. And what happens when you see a lens, if I had a magnifying glass, or if you've ever looked through a magnifying glass, you know that for a certain while, what you are magnifying gets bigger. But then as you move away from that thing, the further and further and further you move away, the image actually turns upside down. How many of you knew that? Well, that's what happens when we are when, in the human eye. If the human eye is looking at my person over there, then what happens with this is that the, the, the image actually goes into the, into the human, help me Lord, into the, into the brain upside down. And what we have to do is as we are children, you know, that's why children, if you ever look at a newborn baby, they kind of look at you really funny because they can't figure out how you're standing upside down when gravity works a certain way. And so they're just there looking at you, well, how are you doing that? <laughs> Not exactly, but when, 
what we have to learn as children is that the world that we see is actually upside down to the way the world actually is. Amen. Can I tell you that truth is always inverse, an inverse relationship to a fact, okay? So for example, if you want friends, many people would say, as soon as I get friends, then I will become friendly, right? I, why aren't you very friendly? Well, these people are being mean to me, so as, as long as they're gonna be mean to me, I'm gonna be mean to them, right? Because the way we see it is that that, that equation makes true, is, is, you know, that's how the world should work. As soon as they're being nice to me, I'll be nice to them. But then the, you'll go and find the truth and you find out that the truth has actually got an inverse relationship to that. What I need to do is first become friendly and then I will have friends, right? If I wanna become wealthy, then I need to gather all that I have and keep everything that I have, right? And then what happens is, is that, that that lends to stinginess and then even though you may have a lot, you may you know, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can, but it doesn't make a very generous, doesn't make an abundant life at all. What you have to do, the Bible says, the inverse of it, even though factually it would look like if I would need to build up my bank account, I need to save that money. That's how it would make sense. But then the truth is inversely related to that. Does that make sense to everybody? If I want to have uh, health in my body, right? The, I want to have more energy in my body. So what I do is I lay on the couch 24 hours a day and seven days a week and don't move. Then, six months from now, since I haven't moved for six months, what's going to happen is I'm going to have abounding energy. How many of you have tried that? It doesn't work that way. It would make sense that it would work that way. If I saved my life, if I save my energy, then I will have more energy. How many of you know it works exactly the opposite, right? And so we recognize then when the truth of a matter comes to bear, the truth actually has, just like that image in our mind, has an inverse relationship to the facts that we are observing. And what we need to learn to do is just what we learn to do as children. We have to learn how to turn the factual world into its inverse relationship, which is to the truth. Okay, And so every time we are looking at a situation where we are challenged to see that situation the, the same way we've always seen it as mere humans. When God comes to us, delivers to us the truth, we want to reject the truth because <clears throat> it would appear as though it's upside down to the way that we have always understood the world to be. But in fact, what we have to learn to do, and this is the fear of the Lord part, is we have to learn how to grab hold of that even though it has an inverse relationship to what we thought was true, we have to grab hold of it anyways. And by grabbing hold of it and not letting it go, even though our mind is wrestling with us, throw it out, throw it out, throw it out, throw it out, we hold on to it. Our soul, one thing about our soul, our soul does not like anything that is contradictory inside of our soul. It cannot believe two different things that do not align with each other. And what will happen to us is even though we, you know, if we don't try hard to hold on to it, knowing that this is the truth and what I believe isn't, then within 24 hours or so, scientifically, your brain has completely forgotten that it was even said. Right, and that's very generous. Most people, I would say, by the time they hit the parking lot on Sunday mornings, everything but the good jokes is gone, right? That is what our soul is actually designed to do by God. 
right? When we were, we were supposed to only be in the garden, we listened to, as Adam, we heard Adam and Eve walking with God, only supposed to be communing with God. The only words that were supposed to get into the heart of a human being were the good ones. And then once we locked in on that and we decided this is what I believe, then forever and ever and ever, we would never have to remove ourselves from that. The New Testament isn't a train up a child in the way that he should go formula, although we certainly want to do that and we want to do the very best that we can. The New Testament is all about this transformational process. And the beginning of it then is that thing that we say now is the fear of the Lord. When we develop a fear of the Lord, we get to that place where our soul has determined that God is right, even though I think God is wrong. Even though I have a hundred thousand examples of lack in my life, the world is still an abundant place. Even though everybody in my life has betrayed me, I still believe that being friendly is going to produce friends. Even though I have maybe have no evidence that that is true. Right? When we come into the Lord, the first thing that we do is we believe him. Right? Even when if you're saved today, then you had to make a decision about your eternity. You used to think that I had to earn it by being a good person or I didn't deserve it because I've been such a bad person. And so either one of those people had to determine, well, it's nothing to do with performance. God saved me because he loves me. He didn't need me to be cleaned up and perfect. He came and got me even though I was you know, in the muck pile myself. And so what we're doing then is that God has got to have the ability to interrupt our natural perceptions. What we see when the, when the opinion of God comes, he is always, always, always trying to interrupt us. And the degree to which we have the fear of the Lord is the degree to which we allow him to interrupt us. If we are, you know, most of the, so many of the people, particularly North Americans, those of you that came back from Uganda, you know that people in Uganda are very different than people in North America. This is the reason that they are different, is because when you guys get there, the people are, you know, listening to every word that you're, that you're saying. They're writing down the things that you say because they're, 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 they're allowing God, they're in a desperate situation often, and they are allowing God to interrupt them. A lot of times when people first come to the church, right, they've tried everything else, and now they're in that place where they're desperate and they have got to get an answer, and they come to the church desperate in order to hear what God has to say. And then they, get, they seem to have this magical little you know, season when they first come to the church, and pastoring is awesome, and victory is awesome, and everything is awesome, I love everybody. Because of that desperation that is in their heart, that is producing this ability like, God, you need to interrupt me and I'm ready to be interrupted right now because I cannot take this anymore. Then God fixes things for them and their life starts to get better and everything starts to turn out okay. And then God comes and interrupts again as he always does. He's trying to do that. But we're not in such a desperate place anymore, particularly when what he's interrupting is he's asking us to do something now we don't want to do or something, he's starting to knock on a door that we are absolutely certain that, no, 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 God, in this area, I got this one. You, you really, you know, I hope you're talking to somebody in the room today, God, because I know you ain't talking to me. I got this one. 
Yeah, anybody ever been on that one? What's happened? We see what happens is, is that we're now not allowing God to do this interruption process. He wants to constantly do it. And the growth curve now getting through from one side to the other, in this curve right here, the key piece to it, or the key piece to the acceleration process of it is the fear of the Lord. Simply because I never get to the place where I'm not letting God interrupt me. Why? Because I started the journey, the first time I went through this curve, I was looking to increase the fear of the Lord. And so let's take a look then for the day today, let's take a look at this thing that is called the fear of the Lord. So where does, where does the fear of the Lord come from? First of all, let's not, let's try to deal with the, well, I'll, do, I'll do it at the end. Uh, the way that you fear something is in, in you know, even, hmm, ah, let's take a look at, we've got to break down a few things here. When you take a look at the word fear of the Lord in the New Testament, the word fear in that sentence is, is the word phobos. Does anybody recognize the word phobos? Yeah, it's the word phobia. It's the word that means to be afraid of something. I know that's a shocker, but we kind of have changed it to be, uh, you know, it's reverence. And it does mean reverence. It does have that component to it. But it doesn't have reverence in the place that we may have in our culture anymore, where we really don't have the fear component that comes with the reverence component. And so you kind of are looking at it going, okay, God, how am I supposed to fear you? Is that really what God is asking us to do to come into that place where we fear God? And so what's important about it is to understand his nature. Because if you don't understand his nature for certain, you're going to fear him. Particularly when we start to understand a few of the pieces about God. And so let's take a look at God's nature. What is he like? And we got to start, because many people say, well, I already know how, how well God is. I have been in school, I've been in church all my life, and, you know, I, I have a Bible. I don't read it, but I have one. Uh, and I kind of know what God is like. I get it. You know, I've been there in the Old Testament, kind of smiting God and, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I get it. So you have to open up your mind, and let's take a critical look at what God is actually like. Because in Romans, it tells us that we create God in the image of the creature. We create God as we are, not even in our godly nature part. Once we get across the line in a bunch of areas, then we are actually able to look at God and see God the way he is. Because it's really become our perspective in a lot of areas also. The problem is, is that when we live below the line we still think that God is like us. The Bible says that, right? If God is, we were created in the image and likeness of God, then God must be like me. <laughs> well, yeah, no, we make God like the creature. And when we take a look at a lot of the nature of God through the eyes of the creature, God is a very fearful being, but fearful in the negative sense. And people run away from God or they don't want to deal with the God factor because he's such a fearful thing. You know, I, I've noticed this. I was talking with somebody the other day. Uh, their, their mother just passed, and they were talking about how uh, being around people as they're getting older and older and older in age, 
when, don't, when they don't know God, they get more and more and more fearful as they get closer to the time when they're going to pass. And the lady was observing that it really shouldn't be like that. It should be more and more exciting for us as we get older and older and older because we have a right understanding of the nature of God and that crossing over to the, other, the next stage in our life is an exciting season for us. And we don't, you know, we, it's got mixed, you know, like the baby that's in Jessica's belly right now, it's warm and comfy in there. But we don't want the baby to stay warm and comfy in there. We want the baby to come on out here so we can play with that. So there's a negative, in a sense, to that baby. They're used to being warm and comfy. Here, when we're passing over, there is a negative part of it, I guess, that we have loved ones that we leave behind. You know, we got to leave our motorcycles as best we understand it. We got to leave our motorcycles behind. And, you know, I really, there's no scripture. I've looked and looked and looked and looked and looked and looked and looked. <laughs> Best I can hope for is a really fast horse. <laughs> or with, well, yeah, there is the horse with wings thing. That's a good one. I'll work with that one. But you, there is that negative part of it where you're leaving something behind. Right? It's really our loved ones. It's not our motorcycles. It's really our loved ones. But it should, that should have a part to it. But it should be really overshadowed by the fact that I'll see you soon, man. I got to go. Right? And so a lot of our experience then is not actually like that. A lot of our experience is based on concern. Do I really know the nature of God? Is he really happy to see me? Is he, is he going to see me? People have that, that concern, right? So let's take a look at it. So number one, God's, God's nature is that he is uh, almighty. We all know that the term that we have, El Shaddai, is a term that means almighty. God is almighty. Or we could say it like this, God is creator. God is all-powerful. God can do anything he wants to do. And as creator of this world, he's a very, he is in a very specific position. Specific, especially when he is delivering instructions to us about the way to use the world the way he designed it. Oftentimes we come into the, to the nature of God and if I, have, if I want friends, I have to first be friendly, right? So the way the nature of the world is that whatever I sow, that I reap. When God created the world, he made the world that way. I would like it to have muscles before I work out. I wish the God would have made it that way. I wish Skittles made muscles. That's what I wish. But it didn't make the world that way, right? He made the world. If you would like to have muscles, you need to go and do things that make muscle. You have to work your muscle. You've got to sow into it before you reap from it. And so God said, when he designed creation as creator, he understands he's in a uniquely, uh, 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 he has a unique perspective as the guy who made the world. Kind of like a unique perspective that BMW has when they built their cars. Now, some people can get a little bit of an idea how the BMW works. 
But if you really have a problem with the computer system or the software on it or the design of it, the guys you really need to talk to are the people that designed the car. The people who, when, when you go to find you're having an issue with life, you're having an issue with the world around you, when you're, let's say, experiencing lack, and you want to fix the lack problem, we can go and talk to somebody who didn't design the world and really doesn't know how it works, or we can go to God and ask God, how does it work, so that if I work it, then it will work. If I take my car into a mechanic, it's very different than taking my car to the guy who fixes swimming pools. I should not necessarily be surprised that when I get my car back from the guy who fixes swimming pools or bakes cakes, that my car doesn't work. And then I'll tell everybody, cars don't work. Instead of telling them, don't go to a baker to ask him how to fix a car, which is what we should have learned. And so when we're now looking at God being creator, God, remember, God is outside of creation. In order for him to have created the world that we know, he must then live outside of that world. And then his commands, this is what's important about it, his commands run the world. And so this is an important component as we will discuss in a minute, we'll go to it now. There's a scripture that says one of the, one of the things about now the, the physical makeup or the, the things that God is able to do, uh, I'll just write them out for you. Many of them you've probably heard before, but let's just, I want you to see them in kind of a context of what does it mean from the perspective of the fear of the Lord if this is what God's nature is. And so then let's take a look at the next one. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is eternal, and God is immutable. Many of you will recognize some of those terms. God is omnipotent means that God can do anything he wants to do. Now, you cannot take a nature of God and take him as pieces. Part of God is not omnipotent and some of God is not eternal. All of God is all of this. And so a lot of times when it says God is omnipotent, we think about us being omnipotent. If I could do anything I want, can somebody get me, Caleb, can you see if you can find a key? Can you get me that book uh, that I wrote with um, Tommy Reed, that wealth book? A lot of times when we think about what would I be like if I was omnipotent, if I could do anything, if I was omnipotent, then I, I let me say this, if Garth was omnipotent, I would be afraid of Garth because I would know that Garth can do anything he wants. And chances are, if I tick Garth off, all I do is become a greasy spot on the floor. And that makes me afraid. I like to be able to control the environments that I go into. I want to be the strongest and the smartest and the, you know, all of those things as human nature. When somebody comes in and they're so much more powerful than me, then that makes me afraid as a human being, as a mere human. And so recognizing why, if I thought God was omnipotent, then his omnipotentness actually has the seed within it to make me afraid. Then it says God is omniscient. If that's not bad enough that he's omnipotent, now we find out that he's omniscient. 
which means God knows everything. Right? Remember in Matthew chapter 10, I think, he's talking about the, the, the hairs on your head, and God literally knows everything about everybody. He knows how many hairs are on your head. I remember him talking to me one time about it and saying, I know how many oxygen molecules you're expelling out of your lungs right now. I've counted them all. So God knows everything about everything. Nothing, the Bible says, escapes his sight. Not a sparrow fall from the sky that God didn't know about that sparrow. You know, not a planet spins around some cosmic sun a bazillion light years away from here with God not watching it happen. He literally knows absolutely everything. So again, if I were to think about God in his omniscientness, he knows everything, really? He knows what I just thought a couple of minutes, really? He knows what I did, really? And you see, with God, us knowing the, whether we make it or whether we fall short or not, whether I have you know, disobeyed God or not, uh, maybe Garth doesn't know, but God knows. And because I am naked before God, that makes me afraid, right? We're, we're these people that if we feel like that, if somebody else, if I had absolute knowledge of somebody else, I would certainly want to take advantage of that other person and so because I would be like that as a human being, I think God is like that. God is not like that, but that's, you see how what's starting to build here is when we get some of these, uh, these ways of God or nature of God, it actually makes us more afraid of him. And that's, you know, the negative side of the fear of the Lord. Then God is eternal. What does eternal mean? God is eternal means that he is, lives outside of time which is hard for us to understand because we never live outside of time. Time is the one thing that is absolutely unchangeable, absolutely a constant in our lives. And so we really don't understand what it must mean for God to live outside of time. The best way the Lord showed it to me when I was wrestling with this years ago was it's kind of like God watches your life like like you would watch a DVD. If you wanted to go back to the beginning again or flip forward or whatever, then God would, is able to do that inside of your life. Just like you're able to flip back and forth on you know, Brad Pitt's performance, we can go back and forward and back and forward. We can watch it again. We can watch it again. We could do, you know, that's how God relates to our lives. You know, it's a very, very simple example of it, but that's how God relates to our lives. And not only that, but God is able then to experience your life completely with you, 100% consumed with your life. He never misses a moment. It's not like, okay, I'm going to get Rachel to do something really bad, and then while she's doing the really, really bad thing, I'm going to go do my bad thing because I know for sure God's going to be busy smiting her and that he ain't going to come. He ain't even going to know that I did it. That doesn't work like that. Right, God, and he never runs out of time. There's six billion people. There could be 600 billion people on this planet and he would still be able to be absolutely present in every single person's life 100% of the time. Then the final one is God is immutable, which means he doesn't change. He's always been the way he's always been and he will always be the way he has always been. He's never going to change. James tells us not only does he not change, there's not even a flinch that he's going to change, not even a shadow of turning. 
He is absolutely the same, and he's absolutely the same forever. It doesn't matter if we beg him to change, if we sacrifice a billion dollars that he would change, that he would do something different, that he would go outside the lines for us. He just won't ever, ever, ever do that. He is good on one side, but not good if we don't have a great relationship with him, that there's nothing I can do to change God. He's always going to be like that. And so now if you summarize all of this and you'd say, okay, God is almighty. He is like the overarching, what we use the word sovereign. He's absolutely in control of absolutely everything. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He is all, in all, every second or nanosecond of time, God still exists in those places. And he is absolutely unchanging. Feel the pressure of those things on your life if you're trying to relate to God. And that's why it's very, very important that we understand the third portion of what God is. And that is God is love. And let's just say he is selflessness. Because we don't really understand the word love really well yet. And what, self, what love means is that God is completely not focused on himself. And so because God is completely not focused on himself, you know, let me read, can I read this? Can I read a couple pages out of this book? It's probably going to say it more succinctly than I would, than I would say it. Um, so if I were God and had to run the universe and keep everyone in line, I sure wouldn't have time to talk to little old me. If I could do anything, it wouldn't even occur to me to spend time trying to help uh, an insignificant person. If I lived forever, I would be so busy, thing, busy doing things that I wanted to do, I would hardly ever notice the things that other people wanted me to do. If I was super smart and mega powerful and uber rich, other people would become almost invisible to me, except where they could serve me and make my life better. I think that's a pretty concise picture of how we believe God thinks. The only problem is, he never thinks like that, ever. Really, never. God has never had a self-focused thought, not one. I realize this is difficult to imagine because we are thinking about ourselves all the time. It will be useful here to delve into the mental processes that cause us to think about ourselves. We can then come to understand why God's experience is so different from ours. When we experience something that is not the way we would like it to be, something is missing, we lack something that we desire, something is not the way we would like it to be, we then consider doing something about that in a way that would benefit me. This is what selfishness is, any thought in the general direction of self. God, never, God never experiences that in his consciousness because he does not lack anything. It's never too hot or too cold where he is. Everything around him is exactly, perfectly, completely, precisely the way he would want it to be. So he has never had an occasion to think about himself. At this writing, I've never been in a sensory deprivation facility, I still haven't, a tank that is specifically designed to remove all conscious awareness of everything about our physical being so that you can just relax, empty your mind, and be beyond the clutter of me. I wonder what this must be like to be totally unaware of everything to do with yourself. 
After getting used to the environment, I think you would stop thinking about you and all the things you want and need and start thinking about other things independently of how they affect you. Certainly, this can only give us a glimpse of what it must like to be like God. Nevertheless, it is useful to consider how different God's life is without all the lack and discomfort and annoyances that we experience every second of our lives. Clearly, he would be thinking of things quite differently than we think about them. This helps us understand what it means for the Bible to say God is love. Because he never experiences a need, he never thinks of being served. Rather, by seeing the needs of others, serving is the only thing that occurs to him. This may be trite or even blasphemous, but God is quite uncomplex. God is just others-focused. Simple. Love is when someone is willing to sacrifice something for the good of another. Love believes so much in, the, uh, in another person that it is willing to give of itself to bless the other person. This is God's nature, not just how he chooses to think, feel, or act. When you do not, exp when you do not experience any fear, lack, shortage, discomfort, confusion, or the like, when you are all-powerful and all-knowing and omnipresent, you have nothing to think about except others, nothing to concern yourselves with except the issues in other people's lives. When you don't need anyone to serve you, you become completely preoccupied with serving them. Consider this, God loves you, really. God loves you. And so when we try to understand then what it would be like to be God and what it means for God to be selfless, to love you, to never have a selfish motive in anything he does. See, a lot of the times when we are trying to assign credential to something, how do we do that? In order for us to allow another person or another source to tell us what is right and wrong, that, that source has got to be higher than me. Or else I'm just going to use me. Imagine that you, you, know, you might be a calculus wizard and some grade one kid who you know don't, they just learned their one plus ones, then they try to tell you what the answer to a complex calculus equation is. You're just going to, you're going to just, yeah, yeah, okay, there you are, nice little boy, whatever. You're not going to pay a lot, they're not going to give any credential to their response. If you, if you are running a mega corporation and some little kid that comes out of college with a business degree comes and tells you the answer and what he thinks should happen, it's going to be nice. You might be polite, but you're going to understand that person doesn't have the, the credential to be able to give advice to you in this area. Does everybody understand what happens here? And so when we are trying to decide in that moment where information is coming to us, whether we should allow the information in or not. One of the main ways that we do that is by assessing the motive of the person who is giving us the information. It's like going into a clothing store and the young lady who works in the clothing store comes up to you and he says, well, I'd like to help you. How do you feel about that? You know that that person works in the store. They would like to help you, but that's not really their exact motive here, is it? 
you know they're trying to sell you something, and so you want, you're, you're going to be somewhat guarded with the information that they give you. I remember one time we were shopping. I don't know where we were now. Yes, I do. It was somewhere down south. It was in Bedford, Pennsylvania, and we went into this clothing store. I think it was a clothing store. I wasn't paying a lot of attention, but I noticed that Pastor Tina was looking at some clothing or sweaters or something like that, and then this person from across the room yelled over and said, oh, that looks awesome on you. And then another, that was, okay, well, that was very nice of that lady. And then I noticed that another lady came by and said, wow, that's really beautiful looking on you. And they walked away. That wasn't the person helping us. It was somebody else. And I thought, wow, that's so nice. You ought to get that, Tina, because they, I don't know these things. So I said, that, you, you should get that. And then as I said that, I looked over and I realized that the two people that had said those things were helping other ladies on the other side of the shop. It was just their system. And so all of us, you know what I did with that information, right? No, honey, put that thing back. It probably don't look good at all. <laughs> the only reason she wants you to buy it is because it's last year's stock. And, you know, on and on, I'm starting to question the motives, right? Don't we do that? Sure. You check the motives of that information. And as soon as you realize that the motives have, a, have their suspect, all of a sudden now the information is almost you throw it out. How many of you have had that experience? And so you can see a couple of the things when the person, you don't think the person has the right credential. They're not, they don't have the right experience. They're not smart enough or they don't know enough or they don't, haven't got enough of a resume. They haven't achieved enough. They aren't old enough. They aren't the right gender. There are all of these reasons that we would say this person doesn't have the credential to speak to me about this particular matter. And then the second area would be I'd look at the motive. And so I'm just not really sure whether this person's motive is right. And what happens then is when the information comes to me, I ignore it. That's just how, I'm not me. We all do that. Now take a look at how this is affected by God speaking or his word speaking to us. Is that one, his motive is, it is unimpeachable. Because God never has a selfish motive ever in doing anything he has ever done, ever. He can't have a selfish motive. In order to have a selfish motive, he must have thought about himself, which he has never done, ever. And so God is not worried, he's not afraid, He's never fearful. He, doesn't, he has no problem with the future. He can see the future. It was like, remember I told you the story about when the devil came? I, you know, the devil didn't know all this about God. Remember when he decided one day that he was going to overthrow God, forgot about the fact that God was eternal? So I can imagine what it was like in the throne room just before the devil barged in with all of his army. God knew exactly when it was going to happen, exactly how he was going to do it. You know, I, I picture the door to the throne room had a little bucket on the top of the door there, you know, with feathers in it. So as soon as the devil came through, all the feathers popped on it you know, just so that God could have a laugh. You see, when we realize that God is like this, his credentials are the most amazing of credentials. He knows everything. He's creator of the world that you live in. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about the world. He knows how everything works. He sees everything. He, not a single issue in all of eternity has escaped his very present view. 
And so when we understand God to be like this, and we know his motives are completely 100% me-focused. Let me show you something that the Lord spoke to me about a couple of years ago. I'm trying to deal with this, what it means to be eternal. And he was talking to me about the fact that he lives 100% of our lives with us. I don't share God with Pastor Tina. I don't share God with Melissa. God is 100% focused on my life as long as I am alive. He can do that and then at the exact same time be 100% present in Tina's life and 100% present in every other person's life because there's no such thing as time in God's existence. And so recognizing that we don't share God. As far as God's concerned, I'm the only human being. And he does love me the most. In my life, in your life, you are the only human being. You never are outside of God's gaze. When you go to sleep at night, God sits by your bed and waits. That's that heavy breathing that you hear in the background when you go to sleep. That's God waiting. A day is like a thousand years to God, right? Like we sleep six hours. That's like 400 years until you wake up. That's what God's like. That's how deeply in love with you God is. And so we see then that when we can look at the nature of God and really understand what it means to be like him, then we have when he speaks. Let's take a look then at what now, now that we know this. Is everybody clear on all this? And we could go on and on about all, you know, every name of God, God's healer, God's provider, God's a banner, God's a shepherd. God's, you know, these are all natures of God being revealed to us in the names of God. And so it doesn't just fit here. You can, his credentials go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. His accomplishments are just absolutely phenomenal. His, uh, you know, his integrity is unquestionable. He has never changed. He is exactly the same person he's ever. And so when we take a look at that, now we then, through the fear of the Lord, let's say that we got this one. And so we have spent some time and we have really built a belief system around the nature of God in such a way that his nature is absolutely clear to us. Then when God speaks, what is it like to us? Can you imagine what that would be like? If with the, knowing the nature of God, especially not just the attributes part of it, what is God like? Let's deal with, oh, you have to add in the love part. Matter of fact, you don't add in the love part. Get the love part first. And I was talking to uh, Brent the other day, and we're talking about this, this, what I believe is the revelation of the next thousand years, and that is the love of God, the love of the Father in our lives. Do you know what? Can I tell you something? We're not supposed to try and look for that after 30 years of serving God. We're supposed to find God first in the love of God. We weren't supposed to come to Jesus dying on the cross and now I have this great debt to pay because Jesus got me out of hell. And so now I guess I better serve Jesus because, you know, he looked to care of me. I guess I got to take care of him. And so this is my Christianity. No, 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 no. So that's not how it starts. 
how it starts is God loved me so much that he asked Jesus to come and pay the ultimate sacrifice for my life to rescue me from a life in, in, in prison. And so my first revelation is God loves me. Not God loves me once I'm cleaned up. God loves me once it, 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 dirty and mucky in the prison. And you see, if we'll start there, then when it comes to the fear of the Lord, I for sure know that he loves me. And then my relationship with God, my relationship with the word of God, my relationship with his instructions in my life, my, my relationship with the Holy Spirit as my guide, as my paraclete, as my helper, then all of those relationships are transformed magically because they start off without me being that fearful person who is holding back from God in every area. I'm that person then because I know God loves me. I, I know he sees me naked. Tina sees me naked. I hate to give you the picture of that, but I'm not, I'm not vulnerable in that moment. Does everybody understand that? I'm not being dirty here. I'm just saying, if the person loves you, it's not a dirty thing. I don't feel exposed. I don't feel like I, you know, because the person loves you, I don't mind being naked. I don't mind her knowing everything about me. Do you understand? And so starting off with the love of God changes our whole relationship to God. Oftentimes, if we come through the other way, learning the attributes of God and all the reasons that I should be afraid of God, I'm living in such a way that I am terrified of him. And then I'm trying to understand God loves me. What do you mean he loves me? Are you kidding me? He knows what I've done. Are you kidding me? He knows where I've been. And see, we struggle. If we start off in that area, then we start learn that first. And then when we start learning the attributes of God, we don't go over to the negative fear part of it and then try to get ourselves back. Does that make some sense to you? If you're an evangelist in the room, does that make any sense to you? Okay, so then let's take a look at what, uh, when we are walking with this person who loves us, and has all of these attributes and gives us an instruction. So he either speaks to us through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit. That would be kind of, I'm, I'm differentiating that only, just says I always spell spirit wrong. So just so that I can now say, I don't always spell it wrong. And then finally through others, sometimes a donkey, no jokes here. And so those are, those are you know, some of the ways that God speaks to us. When he speaks to us, now I have a different relationship with the things that he speaks to me because of the fear of the Lord. So why does God still in the New Testament refer to it as the fear of the Lord? Even, it's not the same as the Old Testament where they didn't have a revelation of the love of God. In the New Testament, we have a revelation of the love of God, but he still calls it the fear of the Lord. Because when we understand that God is, is all of those type of things that we talked about, he knows he's all powerful, he knows everything, he's creator, he built the world that we live in, then we understand that his instructions are right. Not kind of right, they are absolutely right. In every dimension that right can be, they are right. Then what happens is, is that we don't want to do what God says because we're still, remember, we're still living below the line. I got to draw it again for you. I just so much love drawing that line. So while we live down here, we're going to disagree with God because we still think the world is right way up when it's actually upside down. 
And so then the fear of the Lord component comes in where we realize if I disobey these instructions, when I know God could only be giving me those instructions because it benefits me somehow, there's no, there's a hundred percent of it is benefiting me. Not even one percent of it makes any difference in God's life. It's not going to change God whether I do it right or do it wrong. There's no, he's not afraid. He's, you know, oh my gosh, then I might lead Tina astray. He don't care about that. He's got, he can give Tina a dream and she'll completely ignore my foolishness. Happens all the time. He's not afraid of those things. You can't wreck God's reputation. He's not afraid of you falling down or making a mistake and then, oh, Christianity will fail because you're, no, you see, no, God's, he's got all this. He's got a thousand ways to fix a, th- a million of your problems, really. He's just not worried about it. He's already got it under control. We make mistakes all the time. You know, imagine the perfect plan of God, Adam and Eve. They didn't sin. They made children who made children. Nobody ever sinned. Nobody ever sinned. Nobody ever sinned. Gener- There'd be six billion people on this planet that would be doing exactly the thing, the perfect plan of God in each one of their lives. That was God's perfect plan. So imagine how not the perfect plan it is now. After 6,000 years and billions and billions of people making billions and billions of wrong decisions every single day, and God has still not had a bad day. He still has totally everything under control. He's not nervous about anything. And when we realize it like that, we don't have to be afraid of God doing something we have to realize that creation has been set up to work according to the ways of God. What does that mean? When you have a painting, revealed inside the painting is the heart of the painter. How many of you knew that? Revealed inside of, you know, Jess and Mike wrote these songs that you'll hear at this new CD. I think they wrote, if I'm not mistaken, they wrote all of them together. And you'll get a glimpse into Jessica's heart, into Mike's heart, into their life, into their perspective of God, into their, you'll be able to see that as you listen to their songs. If you read this front portion of the book that Tommy Reed wrote, you will get a glimpse into Tommy Reed's heart. You'll get to know the man by reading the book that he wrote. Isn't that true? Do you all understand that? That's how creation is. By seeing creation, we see God. Because we're looking at a painting that he painted. It's three-dimensional, but it's still a painting. Just like you, you're three-dimensional, you would paint a two-dimensional picture. God as four-dimensional, at least, painted a three-dimensional picture. We call it creation. And so when we decide that we're going to go against his instructions, what we're also doing is we're going against his creation. Alignment with God makes us aligned with creation. Things start to work properly in our lives. If I, if I put, you know, my car is a diesel, and if I put diesel fuel in my car, it works really awesome. If I put gasoline in my car, it doesn't work really awesome. It's like that. If I put bubble gum in my car, it'll work even not as awesome in a much higher dimension. 
that's what we're doing. And so what, what I do is when I go to the gas pump, I did this one time, I drove a diesel years and years and years ago, and I made the mistake one time. You only have to make this mistake one time. I put fuel, gasoline in my diesel car. And it goes about a mile because <laughs> it's using up all the diesel fuel that's in the fuel line until it, and then as soon as that happened, it don't work. You see, now that I understand it, even at a higher dimension, I was in the middle of nowhere, like in Paris, Ontario, you know, everyone out there? So I was like, there's not even any cars driving around out there. You are alone by your onesie. I don't even think I had a cell phone at the time. So, I mean, you are really alone and you've really made very, it's a very, can you all pray for me? I just feel like I need to process this moment. Do you know that that becomes now, when I go to the gas pump, even today, I'm really careful about whether I have the diesel fuel pump in my hand or if I have a gasoline pump in my hand. That's the fear of Volkswagen. <laughs> or the fear of diesel. It's not a negative thing. It's an alertness thing. It's like, okay, I'm stinking paying attention this time because that really sucked, being four hours away from home on the side of the road. <sighs> Pray for me. It's, that's the kind of fear that God is talking about when we understand the nature of God and the nature of his instructions, that we realize if God says that to me and I understand his personality, when he talks to me, it has huge weight in my life. My soul is trying its very best never to reject anything that God says. Even if I think it's the dumbest, and I've thought a lot of stuff that God said was dumb. A lot. You remember that one about the blessed to give than it is to receive thing? That was like so dumb. Very nice, but totally. No, I'm much more blessed when I'm the receiver. And so, but you have to open up to it. And shockingly, I remember having this discussion with Tina a couple years ago. It means, you know, I'm revealing a little bit about myself. If it was only a couple years ago. But I remember realizing how awesome it is to be a person that is constantly giving. And you realize the life force of being a person like it's not like it's almost it's so deep and profound inside of the nature of a human being that you have to kind of go at it for a while and realize man it's just like my life hasn't changed a lot but i'm a lot happier i'm feeling a lot more fulfilled i feel like being a human kind of like we get stuck on this outer shell, but then when we start dealing with true things and God things, we start doing stuff at such a deep level inside of our humanity. And it makes us alive. It's something we would never even think would, that I wasn't alive before. But you become alive. Okay, number one, God and creation are the same. <clears throat> and so we recognize that God's instructions are going to affect not my relationship with him, because mine and God's relationship is, is perfect, but because of him, not because of me. It's my relationship with creation that God is trying to do, with you, with the world that I live in, with my health, with my finances, with my uh, relationships, with my dream, with my purpose in life, with all those things. My relationship to all of those things is what God is trying to talk to me about. You know that thing, what's the B-I-B-I-L-E, what does it stand for? Basic instructions before leaving earth? Don't, don't say that. It's got the connotation that all I need the Bible for is to know how to get out of here. You know, that's not what the Bible is written for. It's the Ten Commandments, three of them, my relationship to God. Seven of them, my relationship to other people. 
And then the book of Leviticus, my relationship to the world I live in. Do you understand? So God is all about the life here and transforming life here. When we get to heaven, you know you won't need to take a Bible to heaven. You're not taking it with you. It's staying here for the other people that you need to leave it for. Bequeath it to somebody. They may just read it. The Bible is for us to live here now, not for us to be able to get to heaven, although we get to heaven because of it. God has an intimate and uniquely precise understanding of the universe he created. The only person qualified to tell us how to live life is God. At least, let's not put it that way, and everybody that would try to help me to see things from God's perspective, right? So it's not just, it's it's the word of God, it's reading, it's people around us, people who love us, people who are going to help us to understand God and life better. And number three, to ignore, <clears throat> to ignore or discredit this relationship that is between me and God and his word and the Holy Spirit and others who are trying to bring me to that place invites chaos to some degree. And we become, we become the blind tinkerer playing with the machinery and adjusting the knobs that control our lives. And so we recognize then that, that if we are these people like most of us grew up, and most of us in our culture, people are just blind tinkerers. They're just fiddling with the knobs. You know, when I was down working with these guys down in uh, Harrisburg, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm pretty good on the soundboard back here. You know, I'm pretty much the pro, as I, you know, as you all know, I'm just awesome in every way. But when I get down there, what I do here is I tinker. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing. I'm just fiddling with the knobs until I get it to sound right. That's, that's actually the fact. I don't, I've never done anything really to train myself on what that thing does. But when I get down to Harrisburg and I see these guys, and now these guys actually understand what they're doing. They understand all the different factors of making sound awesome. Then I become, I come back here and I realize I'm just a tinkerer. And I'm a blind tinkerer. I'm fooling myself because I really don't know what I'm doing and everybody knows I don't know what I'm doing, right? That's oftentimes how we are with life. And so we've grown up just being blind tinkerers, listening to other blind tinkerers. Is that true? And then we can't figure out why it doesn't work right when we're just listening to blind tinkerers. We have to be those people that come back and says, you know what, the beginning of all this is going to be my relationship with the Word of God is going to change. It's going to change right now. Because I've noticed in my own life, I've always been a studier of the Word of God. And since I got saved, you know, I love the Bible. I read the King James, which makes me an even more awesome person. And I read a Dake's Bible, which like puts me in the top 1% of all Christians on the planet. But I can tell you something, my life didn't really change until I got this until I stopped looking at the Word of God to learn it and teach it to you. Not that I was teaching it to you at the time. I wasn't doing anything of it at the time. But I started to realize that the Word of God was not just a religious book. It's not a classic. It's not to be taught. It's to be lived. It's to be embedded. And certainly teach it after that. Too many people teach it. Remember that story? You know, others have told me a told you about me, but they don't know me. You see, what we have to do is we have to come to that place where we start here. We start with this reality that God is this awesome being who loves us deeply, 
we could not imagine the depth of the love that God has for us. And he wants to talk to us. He wants to instruct us. But if we don't first build the fear of the Lord and say, okay, from this moment forward, my relationship with the word of God has changed. And number two, from this moment forward, and I think this is the key, my relationship with the Holy Spirit has changed. The Holy Spirit, we can, we can go to comforter and paraclete and come beside one and uplifting one and support one and all these kind of things. The major thing that Jesus said about the Holy Spirit was that he was going to guide us into the truth. He was going to take us through this journey from misery to blessing. But if we don't pay attention to him, if we are not deeply connected to him every single day with this specific and defined intention of obeying him no matter what. That's what it has to be. If we're not feeling like that, if I read the Bible and I'm just, it's just a blah, 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 or the Holy Spirit's talking and I'm ignore, ignore, ignore. I'll take that one, ignore, ignore, ignore. I hope Tina gets that one, ignore, ignore, ignore. If I don't get that, if I don't have that, then I don't have a right relationship with these things we've talked about today. And that needs to change. Hallelujah. Can I, can I share this too? Yeah, come on up. Just as you're, um, as you're saying that. We're like way over time anyway. Having a so. conversation with someone They're today. They're already but mad at me. Just briefly, I mean, what, what would life be like? I'm thinking of the conversation that I had with this person was um, this person that they knew had gone through some painful months of, of you know, this experience. Um, and so the reason that we're talking is it all ends in this amazing moment of testimony. And, and I'm thinking as, as you're ministering this word, I'm thinking, what would happen to the joy in our lives with this message? If oh, yeah. we would focus on the fact that that moment and then that moment and then that moment that every single one of us have experienced when we've been believing and waiting and believing and waiting and allowing our emotions to do this, but every single one of us could say that either in our life or in the life of someone else, we have experienced that moment in time, that moment in God, where we would say, wow, God, you are so faithful. Yeah. And you work that out so beautifully. What would happen in this message of the fear of the Lord if we would allow our life and the, that nature of God and we would allow ourselves like the, through the fear of the Lord to remember that so that while we're waiting and while we're believing and while we're standing because we've experienced those wow moments in God and we know the nature of God that we could live in the joy of the Lord every single day yeah. while we're standing and waiting and believing yeah. because we know something about God, how he loves us and who he is and how he doesn't change. What would that do to the level of joy and peace in our lives hallelujah what would that do for all the things that you're waiting for and believing for right now when you know that you know that you know that you know who god is and what his nature is and how much he loves you that removes all of the worry 
and all of the fear because God is 100% for me and for my good. That brings such peace because we're like, God, you got this, God. You, you see, got that, this. You see, that's what happens when you're down here as most of us are, okay, we have to just admit that there's not a lot of people that have gotten across that line. That's just fact. And so as we are going through this journey, the stuff I'm about to, I keep telling this to you, what we're about to learn, which is the very simple way that you go through this process, except that there's all kinds of deception and smoke and mirrors and devil to trying to get you distracted and deceived and back in and back and forth, and you'll see all of that. But the way that we stay focused on this road is to absolutely know that the kingdom of heaven <clears throat> is here. You see, until we've seen it, we're just going on what God says. Imagine what it would be like to manifest abundance in your life the way you manifest lack now. How many of you try to, you know, if I can manifest health like I manifest smell? You know, I don't have to try to make my armpit smell. I just have to just hang out for 48 hours and it's like, oh, where'd all my friends go? You know, it's, it's just like automatic, right? And so if you can do that and things start to, ex you experience the kingdom of heaven the way you experience the kingdom negatively down here, the kingdom of man, upside down, of course, but the kingdom of man here, if we have the fear of the Lord, we don't quit along here. As a matter of fact, we start having empowerment moments all the way along here as God keeps coming to us and sharing with us and showing us and he's got hope, 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 and across the line you go. There is no quit in you because you absolutely know that God's told me I'm going here. I'm manifesting abundance. I'm going to have health and strength in my body. My family's going to come back together, have a happy marriage. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to, you know, whatever. Whatever God has spoken to you, that, those are now empowerment words to you because you're absolutely convinced that the destination is there. Does that make some sense? All of that happens. This journey now becomes so easy and fast. One, I am open to what God is saying every time he says it. If, I'm, if the glory is pouring out, I'm getting under the spout. I'm just, you know, I am there. When the prophet comes, I'm there. When the church is open, I'm there. When the CDs are there, I'm listening. I'm, I'm focused. I'm focused. I'm focused because I just want to be able to hear from God. I want to know what's going on. And I just don't ever have a quit. There's never a quit in the equation because I know God would never lie to me. I know that he loves me. I know he said this is where I'm going. Do you know, this line is the beginning of, of, the, of the New Testament. They had all this chaos, thank you, Holy Spirit. They had all of this chaos in the Old Testament. They only solved this by getting to the place where religion was able to at least get them away from deep misery. Then religion went bad and got them back down into a whole different level of deep misery but they couldn't get across that line. The fear of the Lord is what gets us to just have this amazing journey through the whole thing because of what Pastor Tina is saying. It's producing joy and hope, especially when you understand you can actually watch yourself go through seasons and very specific patterns that are completely identifiable in the process. And so you even, even if stuff gets a little worse, that's okay, it's supposed to get worse. It's like I told you the other day, Alex took me back to the gym the other day and then I'm puking on my way out the door. 
And he's telling me, good, good. I said, good, I'm just going to try. Because I'm supposed to do that. How many of you have been, you know, right? You're supposed to feel like that when you first start, but it's good. Now you're over. It won't happen again, and so away you go. And so that, because I know that, and I trust Alex will not lie to me, so then I'm happy about it. Even though I wasn't very happy in the moment, I'm still empowered to go back again because I know it's not going to be this bad ever again unless I quit again for four months and then I get to do it again, but more incentive not to quit. So this, this is the point. What we need is we need the courage to begin to listen to God because there's a whole bunch of reasons why the devil, remember I told you before, the devil's major objectives were to, were to empower self for you to have confidence in self. He wants you to be mad at God what was the third one? I don't remember. But anyways, I'll, I'll think of it. The important thing about it is that we, we can become very confident in self and we can get very mad at God, particularly Christians. When we don't understand the ways of God, then God betrays us and he doesn't do the things we want him to do. We can actually separate ourselves from God. We have, to have the, we have to have the courage again to start trusting him, to start obeying. Because even though we obeyed before, it didn't look like it was working because it got worse. The gym didn't look like it was working because I wanted to throw up. And I didn't notice anything buffed in my body at all that day. No chisel anywhere after that 20 minutes in the gym. And so I, it didn't look like it was working. And so we see how we can do that? We can go away from God and we can say, okay, forget it, it don't work. And we make this decision, I'm just not doing that. I'm gonna, sort of, I'm gonna temper this. I'm gonna slow a little bit down with obeying God and then we realize that we've come slowly but surely to the place we don't really obey him anymore anyways in any area. And we have to have that courage to be able to step back into the game and say, okay, I'm ready to do this. I know this is my answer. I may not understand a whole lot about this journey, but I'm not going to disobey God anymore. I'm not going to ignore what he's saying to me. So and we spend time in prayer. We listen to what God is saying to us and we go ahead and do the things that we're that he's asking us to do. So say this with me. Put your hand over your heart and say this with me. Say, Heavenly Father. I know that you're absolutely right, that you absolutely love me, and so there's no reason at all for me ever to ignore what you're saying, or reject what you're saying, or disobey what you're saying. And so I make the decision today. I declare I am a courageous person. I'm courageous because I trust God, because I know that he loves me. I know that he can do anything. I know that he knows everything. I know that he never changes. And so I know I'm completely safe. I know that I can follow him and obey him Submit to his word, and I know that's going to cause me to move from misery to blessing in every area of my life. It's my decision today to obey the word of God. It's my decision today to follow the leading of the Holy Ghost in my life. That's my decision and I'm not turning back from it in Jesus' name.